So with that, we're going to move into the passage for today. So if we can pull up the slides here. We are moving into Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. I'm going to read that to you. As soon as we get it up. Or we could sing, created me a clean heart. Okay, here we go. You don't want to hear me sing that. All right. I see it up there, but not on my iPad. I still see created me a clean heart on the iPad. <laughs> okay, let me, let me read here while they're taking care of that. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Are we able to get the iPad going? All right. So um, here in this passage, we are uh, closing out. Oh, there we go. We're good. I see it now. <laughs> Just wanted to make Gabe do a lap around the, the, the sanctuary. Uh, we, are, we are coming into the, the final stretch here in the book of Colossians. Uh, we've been going through this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. And now we are in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Now, just to, to review a little bit and to kind of set up what's happening here today in this passage, if we look here at this diagram, what Paul has been talking about since chapter 3, verse 1, is this concept of the new person that we have become in Christ. We have become new people in Christ. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, he talked about what our new self should look like, the very, the very core of who we are, of our being. And he said it's, it's not in legalism, it's not in a bunch of do's and don'ts, but it's, it's about a fundamental change in who we are as people. And he described that in terms of a putting off, a putting to death, and a putting on. So he said, we're to put to death things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, amongst other things, and, and, and ways that we speak to each other, and anger, and things like that. We are to put to death those things, and we are to put on instead compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. See, these are not legalistic things. It's not a checklist type thing. This is literally who we are, our new self, a transformation from the inside out of who we are. And then last week in chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul talked about the family, the Christian household, and, wh and what that should look like. So what I think Paul is doing here is he's going from the very self our very selves and our character and our heart that's been transformed, and he's moving out one concentric circle, and he's saying, if we have been transformed, our new selves should 
make an impact, it should change the way that our most intimate relationships look. And our most intimate relationships are those within the home, within the Christian household. So he talked about relationships between wives and husbands, between children and parents, between bondservants and masters, and how this should all be transformed because of the new self that God has created within us. And I think what we're seeing this week in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, is that Paul moves further out in this circle, and then he talks about outsiders. And by outsiders, what Paul means in the letter of Colossians is those who do not profess to be Christians, those who have not put their faith in Jesus and, and could be atheists or agnostics or people of a different religion entirely. These are people outside of the Christian family. And Paul says that our new self should also affect these relationships. And I, so I think that's the flow here. That's the logic of what Paul's doing here as we see verses two through six. So Paul, as you remember, if you've been around for the series from the beginning in chapter one, Paul started the letter to the Colossians talking about prayer, right? If you remember, he said he always prays, giving thanks to God because of the love that the Colossians had for each other, because of the hope laid up in heaven that they had, right? So he, so he prayed, giving thanks to God all the time for their love. He also prayed that they may know the will of God so that they can know how to live lives that are fully pleasing to God. He started the book of Colossians with prayer, and now, as he wraps up the teaching portion, he comes back to prayer as well. And he talks about uh, prayer here, as you can see in the beginning, continue steadfastly in prayer. That's the topic here as he rounds out and closes out his teaching. Now, what does he have to say about prayer? There are two things that he has to say about prayer that I want to cover today. The first is this. Paul talks about the character of prayer. Now, what the character of prayer means is what prayer should be like. What prayer should be like when we pray? What should characterize it? What should mark the way that we pray? The second thing he talks about is the content of prayer. And that's what we should pray about. The things that we should pray about. So he talks about the character of prayer, and he talks about the content of prayer. What our prayer should be like, and what our prayer should be about. So we're going to get into that here. First, we're going to start with the character of prayer. What are prayers should be like. And there are three things that he points out here in verse two. The first is he says that our prayer should be steadfast. Our prayer life should be steadfast. And by steadfast, what that word means in the Greek is, is to persist. It's to pray and not give up. It's to pray and hang in there. Now, Paul has reason to say this because isn't it true that we can be so inconsistent in our prayers? We can be so inconsistent. We can be so hot and cold. We can be so sporadic in praying in fits and starts, praying in spurts. Maybe we go to a retreat and we feel really filled by God and our prayer life just boosts and goes through the roof and we're spending time in intimacy with God only for two or three months later for us to be back at the place that we were before or maybe even with less of a prayer relationship with God. Or maybe your prayer life tends to be driven by desperation or by crises. 
You find yourself praying to God when, when, when your kid is sick or when there's a problem at work or when you really need to get into that company or get into that school. That's when you find yourself in prayer. There's an old saying, uh, there are no atheists in foxholes. Uh, I think that applies to our prayer lives as well. Maybe you find yourself praying only when things get really rough and you find yourself desperate to God. But then once that crisis passes, once the storm passes, you find your prayer life dissipating and going back to the way that it was. But Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that actually when we pray, we should pray without ceasing. That's what should characterize our prayer lives, a continuous, persistent, consistent prayer life that marks us so much that we are known as a people of prayer. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew 21, he said about the church, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So when people walk into the church, if somebody had no idea about the church, if somebody had no idea about Christians, and they come and they experience the church, and they come and, and see what we're about, and they participate in our stuff, in our community groups, and in our li- the life of our church, they should walk away saying, those Christians, they pray a lot. They really believe that God answers prayer. They should actually say that this place is a house of prayer. That's what should characterize it. That's why one of Renewal's values, one of our church's values is fervent prayer. That is one of our values. Don't believe me? Go to our website. Our values are are there. One of them is fervent prayer. We want to be a church that knows how to pray. I want to encourage you to join us. Every Tuesday night, we are trying to develop a character of fervent prayer. Every Tuesday night, we pray for two hours from 7 to 9 o'clock. From seven to eight, we spend time personally before God, learning how to bring our heart to him, learning how to wait upon him, learning how to struggle in prayer consistently and persistently for the things in our lives, for the people in our lives, for God's will to be done. And then from eight to nine, we have a time of led prayer where we pray through specific things and topics. We do this every week. Why? Because we want to develop that persistence. We want to develop that steadfastness in what we do as a church. We want to be a church that prays. Every Wednesday morning, now, 7 to 8 o'clock, we have an opportunity, a time where you can come and you can just read your Bible and pray on your own with a Zoom on and music playing. And, and, and it's an opportunity for you to just come and to spend your personal time with God knowing that there's some other people there doing that as well. And you can type your prayer requests into the chat window and you can you know, share a conviction that you got while you're reading your Bible passage for the day, things like that. It's just a chance, just a place, a space for you to come and develop a steadfast relationship with God in prayer. In your own personal life, we need to have those personal spiritual disciplines and habits of spending time with God in prayer on a regular basis in your prayer closet whether it's at home or while you're driving to work or, or while your baby's napping or, or whenever it might be, we need to develop that steadfastness in prayer. Some people, they like to say, which I've done before in the past and which I've shared before, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not about these set times of prayer. I just like to commune with God all day long. I just like to be in his presence all day long. Um, John Piper 
addressing this. He said, you can't get deep with God on the run, fitting him into the cracks of your day. But you can enjoy continual fellowship with God on the run if you have gone deep with God in the stillness of the season of prayer. What John Piper is saying is that, you know, it's really great. It's a wonderful idea to just always be in the presence of God and communing with him in prayer. But that doesn't happen unless you've learned to go deep with him, unless you've learned to really struggle in prayer and to fight through the, the distractions that come into your brain and the boredom that pops up at times and to persistently sit at his feet in prayer. And when you learn to do that and you break through and you experience the joy of sensing the intimacy of God, that begins to flow into the other areas of your life. When you go deep with God in prayer, prayer flows into every other part of your life. When I was in high school, I had a friend, his name was Alex. He was a math genius. He was a math genius. He graduated high school a couple of years early. He skipped college. He just went straight to postgraduate work for mathematics. And when I talked to him, I could barely understand what he was saying half the time because he was just so into mathematics. His prof the teachers at school, the math teachers, didn't understand what he was talking about because he was so deep into mathematics. His life was mathematics. I had an electronics class with him, and I think any class but math was a bore to Alex, but we would be in electronics class together, and Alex didn't care about the electronics textbook. He didn't care about the electronics lesson. He didn't care to learn electronics. He tried to do all the tests and the homework, answering all the questions using mathematics, because there is some type of correlation between electronics and mathematics. So he would answer everything with mathematics. That was, that was Alex, because for Alex, everything was math. He went so deep in math that everything was math. I think this is what like John Piper is saying and what Paul is saying here, that when we go deep with God in prayer, in steadfast prayer, our prayer will not be ceasing. It will flow out into every other part of our lives. You know what happens when we go deep with God in prayer in a steadfast way? It flows out into the rest of our lives. When you're driving on a 101 and there's a bad accident there, when you pass by, maybe normally you'd go, oh, that's that's bad, rubbernecking and causing the slowdown in traffic. But as you go deep with God in prayer, you find yourself instead praying, saying, God, have mercy on those people. I pray for them. I hope that you will preserve their lives and be with them and help them through the accident that they've been through. Maybe before when something good happens to you, you're just like, yes, man, that's great. I'm so happy that good thing happened to me. And, and it's, maybe it's coincidence or you think it's just fortunate but when you've gone deep with God in prayer, instead, your automatic reaction is, God, thank you so much. I deserve nothing, but I take this as your grace. I'm so thankful to you for your every provision. That's what happens as we go deep with God in prayer, as we go steadfast with God in prayer. Paul also says that our prayer is to be watchful. And, and what I think he means by that is um, when I see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane telling the disciples to watch, the same word there, the same root word there, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think what Paul is saying is it's through prayer that we can be watchful. It's through prayer that we can avoid temptation. Like Peter wrote, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
When we are steadfast in prayer and watchful in it, we protect ourselves from falling into temptation, from falling into the old self that he talked about, from falling into a a lust or passion or sexual immorality or envy or anger, from falling into those things, from falling into dysfunctional household relationships, from falling into the ways of the old self. When we pray watchfully, Praying watchfully is like, is like saying, God, I, I understand, I see. Did you see how I just reacted when that person said that, God? I know what's happening. I'm being insecure because I just care about what other people think about me because of what he said, and I'm feeling very insecure, and I want to justify myself, and I'm getting angry right now. But God, I pray, help me to know who I am in Christ and that it is not about what these people say about me that defines me, but it is you. It is the fact that I am a child of God is what defines me. So set me free from that. Set me free from being able to, from needing to respond in anger or trying to, trying to prove myself to these other people, but instead help me to be secure. That's watchful prayer. That is watchful prayer that is aware of temptation and guards ourselves from falling into it. Thirdly, Paul says that our prayer should be filled with thankfulness, with thanksgiving. Lest we think that this steadfast, watchful prayer is something that leads to paranoia, where we are constantly like the devil is prowling around. He's going to get me. I'm so scared. I'm so anxious. And and we become spiritual hypochondriacs in prayer. We can go too far sometimes. Paul says our prayer should always be filled with thankfulness as well. Because Christ has won the victory. Because I know that my life is bound up with Christ and I'm forgiven of my sins and that I will be with God forever and that God is greater than the world. He is greater than the devil. So I can be filled with thanksgiving. You know, if you ever ever find yourself feeling really anxious or discouraged or down in life, I exhort you, try spending 10 minutes in prayer just giving thanks to God, doing nothing but giving thanks to God. No matter what you're going through in that moment, start praying, God, I thank you so much that I have three meals a day and that I am not hungry. There's so many people in this world that are hungry. I thank you that I have, I have food. I thank you that I have clean clothing and, and a roof over my head, that when it rains, I stay dry, that in the winter, I'm warm. God, I thank you that when I come to church, I can worship you freely. I know there are many places in this world where people cannot even sing or proclaim the name of Jesus lest they become persecuted. God, I'm so thankful that I know that no matter what happens in my life, that you love me and I will spend eternity with you, that I'm so secure in Christ and nothing can snatch away my salvation. And Jesus, you are returning for me. Try spending 10 minutes in thanksgiving and see if that doesn't change the way that you're feeling and begin to lift your anxiety, begin to encourage you in the midst of discouragement. Paul says our prayer is to be characterized by steadfastness, watchfulness, and thankfulness. That is to be the character of our prayer. Now, moving on to the content of our prayer. Now, the character was what our prayer should be like The content of our prayer is what our prayer should be about. So what does Paul say? What should we pray for? What are the things that we pray for? 
he asked the Colossians to pray for him about two things. First, he asked them to pray for an open door, that God would open up the door for the gospel to be declared. Secondly, he prayed for a courageous heart to pray, to go through the door when the door has been opened in declaring the gospel. So he asked the Colossians, pray for me that God would open doors and that God would give me a courageous heart. Let's look here how he says that in verse 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, us being Paul and his companions in the ministry, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, brothers and sisters, let me say this first, that sharing the gospel, that evangelism is, is, is extremely central. It is core to who we are as Christians and what we are called to do while we are here on this earth. It is so central. I've often said this, brothers and sisters, but you know the only reason that we are still experiencing life right now as we know it, the only reason that Jesus has not returned yet is because his name has not been declared to every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. Because once that happens, Jesus will return, history will come to a close, the final judgment will take place, and a new heavens and a new earth will be ushered in. He's not waiting for you to finish your career goals. He's not waiting for you to get married. In fact, even if it's your, your wedding day and you're there and you're about to say, I do, and you hear that trumpet blast, because Jesus is coming back and you go, no, not right now. Jesus is going to go, yes, right now, right now. It's not about waiting till you get married. It's not about waiting till your bucket list is fulfilled and, and you get to have all the experiences that you're looking forward to in life. That's not what he's waiting for. When the gospel goes to every tribe, tongue, and nation, then the end will come. That's how central, that's how important evangelism is in the life of the church. Again, let me quote John Piper. He said this, Christianity is a soul-winning outreaching, mind-persuading, heart-entreating, rescuing, missionary faith, or it is not true Christianity. We need to be reminded of this because it is almost incredible how listless we can become while calling ourselves Christians. Little by little, our whole orientation can become inward. We just go about our in-house religious business like a medical clinic that sees fewer and fewer patients and has more and more staff meetings until there is nothing left but a smooth running program for the doctors and nurses and their families. That is what happens to many churches. Isn't that true, brothers and sisters? Paul says we need to pray for God to open doors to the gospel being proclaimed and declared in the lives of those around us. Now, if Paul, you see, this is so important because have you ever shared the gospel and felt like, man, I'm getting nowhere? I feel like when I share the gospel, the, the, the door of this person's heart is just closed. His heart is so hard, doesn't even want to talk about it. I feel like I'm getting nowhere in sharing the gospel. That's why Paul says, one super important thing that we need to do is we need to actually pray. 
that God would open doors to the gospel. Because if God doesn't open a door, it doesn't matter how hard we knock, that door is not going to open. God is the one who has to open the doors. This is why Paul is saying, pray, pray for us, that God would open doors. Paul understands the difference between God opening doors and just banging your head on a door over and over again. To the Corinthian church, he told them, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul's saying, I'm staying here in Ephesus because God has opened a big, wide door, and many people are coming to know the Lord through my ministry and through my work. Paul understood that. Look, Paul prayed, he said, Colossians, pray that God would open a door for me, even though he was in prison. You know, he was under house arrest in Rome for two years when he wrote that to the Colossian church. Now, you think about that for a moment. If you were sharing the gospel, that's what Paul was doing, and ended up in house arrest, in jail for it, you'd probably feel like, well, guess that door's closed. Guess I shouldn't try to share the gospel anymore. I tried, God. The door's closed. But Paul, in prison, is saying, pray for me, that God would open another door for me to be able to share the gospel. Paul understood that God can open doors anywhere. Look at how he lived his two years in Rome under house arrest. It says this at the end of the book of Acts. It says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. He had to pay for his own jail time. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. God opened up a door for him while he was under house arrest to share the gospel with many people. And it says, without hindrance. God removed the hindrances. He opened the door so that he was able to do that. In fact, when Paul, as soon as he got to Rome, he said, call all the Jews together. And he, the Jews gathered to him, and he said, let me tell you about the gospel. And they said, go ahead. We haven't heard any bad news about you. Tell us the gospel. And he preached the gospel to the Jews that were there. For two years, God kept opening the doors to him. Look at what he also wrote to the Philippians. Same time, two years, while he's in prison in Rome, he also wrote the letter to the Philippians. He said this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being imprisoned, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The whole imperial guard got evangelized, heard the gospel. How? Well, it was probably kind of like this, this artist's depiction here. I know you can't really see it well, but Paul, there's Paul on the left, and a Roman centurion chained up to him. And Paul is there dictating a letter to the Philippians or whoever, to somebody else. You see, Paul was under house arrest, and there was probably some Roman soldier chained to him at all times, and they would come in rotations, and the next guy would come and chain himself to Paul, and the other guy would go home or go to lunch or something like that. So these people were sitting there for hours at a time, listening to Paul declare the gospel to people who came and visited him, declare the message that he wanted written to the Colossians, that he wanted written to the Philippians, and they were hearing this over and over again. And some of them were probably like, oh, gosh, what is this guy talking about? But some of them after time said, you know what, that's really interesting. Some of them after time said, man, I feel like I need that Jesus in my life. And I am sure that many of them came to know Jesus as well. In fact, not only the Roman soldiers, but he said to the Philippians, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Even people in Caesar, the emperor's palace, became Christian through Paul's ministry 
God opened so many doors for him in a place where most of of us would think there's no way. That's it. I'm locked up. My ministry is done with. Paul said, no, God can open a door in any and every circumstance. So he was constantly praying, God open doors. And he was constantly on the lookout for open doors. Many of you may know the story of Don Richardson through his book, Peace Child. If you don't know his story, go look it up online. It's an amazing story. Don, his wife, and their infant son uh, flew into Papua New Guinea probably about 60 years ago in the Papua New Guinea to share the gospel with the Sawi tribe, the Sawi tribe in Papua New Guinea. Now, these were not just uh, typical tribesmen. The Sawi were a very ferocious people known to be um, cannibals and headhunters. In, in fact, when they, when they killed their enemies, they would collect their skulls and they would have trophies like that and they would sometimes eat their enemies. This is the people that Don and his family went to share the gospel with. And he, he talks about when he first went to them and they surrounded them, hundreds of them armed there. And he, he wasn't sure if they were there to welcome them or there to eat them. But eventually they welcomed them because they had heard about some of these missionaries going to other tribes and, and bringing medicines and, and fishing lines and metal tools. And, and they were also eager to have one of these foreigners come and share these resources with them. So they actually welcomed Don and his family into the tribe. And Don learned the language and he tried to share the gospel with these people, but he had a very, very difficult time. He recounts a story one time where he was sharing the message of the gospel to them and about Jesus and how he was betrayed by Judas, Jesus's close friend, one of the 12 disciples. And when he shared that, the people who were listening were all thrilled and really excited about Judas. They're like, that Judas is a really cool guy because in their society, they valued deception and treachery. And if you could trick somebody really, really well, if you could get the best of them, it proved that you were really savvy and admirable. And they looked up to that. So they're like, oh, Judas, yeah, yeah, that Jesus is a dupe. He fell for Judas. And when Don heard this, he was like, how in the world am I going to share the gospel with people like this? And he prayed and he prayed. He said, God, open a door open a door for me to be able to share the gospel so that they could understand the message of Jesus Christ. Well, one day, um, there, so there were other tribes near them, and sometimes other tribes came too to benefit from Don and his wife and their, their ministry and their, you know, their resources, but these tribes didn't always get along, and sometimes they would break out into warfare. And Don talks about one time where people were fighting, people were getting killed, people were getting killed right outside of his little thatched hut that he lived in with his family, and he couldn't take it anymore. And he told the chief of the Sawi tribe, if this killing doesn't stop, we're leaving. We're leaving. We're not staying here anymore. And the chief and the tribe, they were really dismayed at this. They didn't want to lose this family and all the benefits that they brought to their tribe. So they they decided to take a really radical step. And Don witnessed something really, really amazing. He witnessed a ceremony that he called the peace child ceremony. And what the ceremony was, was the chief would take one of his newborn infants, a child, and he would give that child to the other tribe. And, and when he gave the child to the other tribe, you imagine the sacrifice 
that that takes from the family to give away their child to the other tribe. When the other tribe received that child, because it was such an act of sacrifice, they would raise that child as their own. And as long as that child was alive, as long as they kept that child alive, there would be peace between the tribes. And Don saw an opportunity there, and he proclaimed to them that Jesus is the peace child of God, that God sent in order to be able to make peace between us and him through the sacrifice and death of Jesus. And through that, that was the opening. That was the door that God opened, and many people came to know Christ. In fact, the majority of the tribe came to know Jesus. And to this day, 60 years later, they view themselves as a missionary tribe, sending people deeper into, into the jungles to share the gospel with other tribes as well. God transformed that place. In a situation where you imagine how in the world can a people who applaud Judas ever receive the gospel, God opened the door through persistent and steadfast prayer. Brothers and sisters, you may feel like you don't have an open door with the people around you, but you need to pray. We need to pray, God, open the door with my coworker. Open the door with my family, with my friends. Open the door of my classmates' heart. Open the door of the, of the people that I go to the gym with. Open the door of the hearts of, the, of my neighbors, of the people around me, God. You can open a door in the hearts of these people, God. You can do it. Paul understood that it was not through his own strength but it was through God who opens doors. So the first thing that Paul prayed for is, Colossians, pray that God would open doors for me to be able to declare the ministry, the gospel of God. And the second thing is, he says, pray for me that when God opens up the door, I would have a courageous heart. I would have a courageous heart. Why do I say that? Because in verse four, Paul says, Pray for me that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul says, pray for me that when I declare to God, when I have that opportunity, when God opens up the door and somebody's willing to listen, that I clearly proclaim the gospel because that's the way that the gospel should be proclaimed. That's the way that I should speak. I should speak it clearly to people. Brothers and sisters, we need courageous hearts to speak the gospel clearly to others. I think it is very tempting for us to say, and I've heard many people say this, you know, I, I'm not really into sharing the gospel with people and telling them the gospel. I prefer to show them the gospel through my life. Amen to showing people the gospel through your life. Super important. Colossians 3, chapter, one, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, the way that we live, super, super important. They need to see the beauty of our marriages. They need to see the beauty of our, our parent-child relationships. They need to see the beauty of the way that we work and are at work. But the gospel also needs to be spoken. Think about this for a moment. Paul says that we need to speak it. Pray for me that I may speak it clearly. If we think do we really expect somebody to come to understand what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel by observing your life? Can that really happen? So somebody, as they get to know you and hang out with you, and they're your friend for many years, when they observe your life, we expect them one day to say, hmm, 
I'm looking at my friend, I'm looking at, at, at Jack's life over here. And man, you know what I realized as I look at Jack's life? He didn't say any of this to me, but I realized I'm a sinner. Yeah, I've got problems. And I realized too that I can't save myself from my sin. I, I, I've, I've made many mistakes and faults in my life and, and I can't do it. I can't make up for that myself. And you know what I realized too from looking at Jack? I realized that there's a God in heaven and he must have sent his son to the earth to die in my place so that I could be forgiven because I could not be forgiven on my own. And if I will put my faith in that, that child of God, that he is God, then I can also be forgiven and then I can become a child of God as well. Do we really expect people to come to understand the mystery of the gospel through simply our silent witness? They won't. They won't. They are more likely to say, you know that Jack? He's a really nice guy. <laughs> I don't know what it is about him, but he's a really nice guy. He's a good guy. I'd like to hang out with Jack. That's more likely what they will end up saying, what they will end up concluding. This is why Paul said in Romans, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Not someone acting, not someone living, not someone exemplifying, but without someone preaching. So faith comes from hearing, not seeing. Seeing is important too. But faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ as we declare it clearly to those around us. Brothers and sisters, the gospel needs to be spoken. Not only that, not only does the gospel need to be spoken, but by clearly, we also need courageous hearts to speak the whole gospel, the entire gospel. Sometimes we kind of just cut it short in our sharing of the gospel. We say, hey, Jesus loves you. Would you like to become a Christian? Jesus loves you. And if you believe in him, he'll change your life. Your life will get so much better. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> Who wouldn't want that? God loves me? That's awesome. I like people who love me. He wants to make my life better? That's great. I want that. I'll be a Christian. That's not Jesus. That's Santa Claus. That's Santa Claus. If we don't talk about sin, and how we need to be forgiven, and how he died on the cross because we are so broken, we are beyond repair, and there's no way that we can save ourselves, and there's no other name under heaven by whom we shall be saved. If we don't talk about sin and what Jesus did upon the cross. Or maybe we talk about that. We talk about how Jesus died upon the cross for our sins, but then we don't talk about how he is our Lord. How important that is as well. So we share the gospel with somebody. We say, hey, Jesus died on the cross so that all your sins could be forgiven. And the person goes, yeah, that's awesome. I want to be forgiven of everything. That's great. You mean I'm forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future? You go, yeah. They go, that's awesome. And they view Jesus as a get out of jail card free, get out of jail free card. They view Jesus as diplomatic immunity. I can go do whatever I want and God will forgive me because he's like a cuddly grandpa who always forgives me. And we fail to present Jesus also as Lord. 
The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'll follow you. I want to follow you. Jesus says, you are welcome to follow me. But hey, before you do, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away sad. He couldn't do it. He didn't do it. Jesus has conditions. He says, you want to follow me? You want this forgiveness of sin? But I'm also your Lord. That's what you're signing up for as well to take up your cross and to follow after me. And Jesus may or may not tell you to sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow him. But he does say to each and every one of us, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a Christian, it means I am Lord of everything. I've always been Lord, but you're acknowledging that I am Lord of every part of your life. No wonder sometimes we share the gospel, we talk about sin and forgiveness, but we don't talk about lordship, and we find that the people that we share the gospel with, they are like the seeds that are planted in rocky soil, and they come to know Jesus, and they say that they believe in Jesus, but as soon as life gets tough, as soon as God puts his finger and says, you can't live that way anymore, they say, forget this, and they walk away from God, because we fail to present the whole gospel. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for courage to present the gospel, the whole gospel, and nothing less than the gospel. I know what it is like to be scared. I know what it is like to, 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 to preach an incomplete gospel. When I was in college, my freshman year, I roomed with one of my best friends from elementary school, good friend of mine. We used to play Dungeons and Dragons together before it was cool again now. I heard it's become cool again. I played it in third grade. One of my best friends, we ended up rooming together again. I had been a Christian for about three or four years at that point. I've never shared the gospel with him before. One night, we're going to bed. He was in his, he was in his bed. I was in my bed. We're, the lights were off. We're about to go to sleep. And he goes, Ulysses, you're a Christian, right? I go, yeah. He goes, what does that mean to be a Christian? How do, how do you be a Christian? And I did not know what to say. I was so uncomfortable. I was so nervous and afraid. I just mumbled out something about, you need to believe in Jesus. And I don't even understand what I said. And I know he didn't understand what I said because he was like, okay. <laughs> and he went to sleep. And I was just relieved that he went to sleep. And I, and I muffed it. I totally muffed it because I wasn't courageous and I didn't share the entire gospel. It happened again a few years ago. I was hanging out with Christine and her family. And her uncles and her aunts and her cousins were all around and we we're just kind of hanging out together as a family. And one of her uncles looked at me and said, hey, Ulysses. I go, yeah. He goes, you're a pastor, right? I go, yes. He goes, you believe in Jesus, right? I go, yes. He goes, you think I should believe in Jesus, right? I go, yes. He goes, convince me to be a Christian. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was so intimidated. He was looking at me, arms crossed. Her other uncles, aunts, they're all listening now. I had the room and I totally muffed it. I just, I just went through something about believing in Jesus, sweating, hoping that he would not ask a follow-up question. And it was so bad that he did not ask a follow-up question because nobody would ask the follow-up question after what I shared. Nobody would want to know anymore. And, and I, just, I just spit out a half-hearted gospel, an incomplete gospel. Man, I, I, I need courage to preach the full gospel to those around me. And maybe you do as well. Brothers and sisters, this is so important because, you know, if you think that evangelism and sharing the gospel means bringing your friend to church 
so that they could listen to me, you are mistaken. That is not the biblical model. That's not what happens in the church. The church is when believers get together and they worship God and, and they sit under biblical teaching and they fellowship and they have communion. And if people come to know Christ incidentally in that context, that's great. It could happen. It could happen because they hear the Bible being preached and they decide to become a Christian. It could happen because of 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says God shows up in a powerful prophetic word and the non-Christian falls on his knees and says God is truly among you because the secrets of my heart have been laid bare. It could happen because he sees how much we love each other and he says God must be real because of that. But it's not because they come and they hear me evangelize them. I'm not an evangelist. I'm an elder. I'm a shepherd teacher. Bring them to hear Billy Graham. Yes, that's who you, he's an evangelist. Bring them to hear him. Bring them to hear other evangelists. But when it comes to sharing the gospel, it's on you. It's on me to go outside the walls of the church to share the gospel. That's how it happens in the Bible again and again and again. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. Not, not, not bring them here. And then they'll hear a preacher speak, and then they'll become disciples. No, you go and make disciples. In the Bible, the gospel is preached in the marketplace. It's preached in the synagogue amongst unbelieving Jews. It's preached down by the riverbank. It's preached in the Areopagus at Mars Hill. It's preached in the prison with a, with a soldier strapped to his wrist. It's preached to Caesar's household. It's preached before kings and before emperors. That's where the gospel is preached, out there, not in here. That's why we need to pray, God, give me the boldness. Give me the boldness. Give me the courage to preach the gospel and the whole gospel to those around me. Like the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4. They said, Lord, look upon their threats. They're threatening us. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And what did they pray? Did they pray, God, make them stop threatening us? God, take away the pain God, make them like us. No, they prayed, God, give us, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That was their prayer. God, make me courageous to preach the gospel, the whole gospel, boldly. Paul also goes on and he says, we need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. You know, when Paul says here, he says, this is the way that we are to relate to people who don't know Christ. We are to relate to them wisely. How do we relate to them wisely? It means we are to make the best use of the time. Now, what does that mean? How do we make the best use of the time? It's important to understand that the word there, time, in the Greek is the word kairos. Everybody from Kairos Church be like, yeah, Leon. Okay, it's kairos. The word time there is not chronos. Chronos is your watch. Chronos is your calendar. That's another Greek word for time. No, Paul uses the word kairos because kairos means opportunity. It means opportunity. So when he says make the best use of the time in your relationship with those who don't know Christ, what he's saying is make the most of every opportunity with them. Why? Because life is short. Life is short. And that opportunity may never come again. 
And somebody may never have the opportunity to hear the gospel again. Somebody in your life that you have the opportunity to tell about the love of Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we we get really caught up in relationships. You know, I want to build a good relationship with my friend who's not a Christian. And and that's, that's true. That's good. We should do that. And we should do so genuinely, loving all people around us. But sometimes we do that for on and on and on, forever and ever and ever. And we actually never end up sharing the gospel with them. We never end up actually sharing the gospel. Now, this this doesn't mean that we are rude and the answer to every question that they ask, do you want to go to lunch, is Jesus. That's weird. That's rude. That's unwise. No, our words, as Paul said, should be gracious. Should be gracious. Not like the toxic debating speech of this day, but our words should be gracious. But we should be seeking to make the most of every opportunity because we know the deepest need of our friends, our coworkers, of our classmates is a relationship with God. Do we have that mindset. These are kairos moments. These are kairos relationships that God has given me. Lord, how can I make the most of them? You know, I've, uh, I was the first person to become a Christian in my family, and my father became a Christian during the last few years of his life, before, after he got lung cancer. My mother became a Christian a few years after that. She had developed Parkinson's disease about 10 years ago, and she was not a Christian. She was a very, very proud woman, and I'd shared the gospel with her kind of here and there once in a while. And then one day, I had a dream, and I had a very scary dream. I had a dream that there was a house, and my mother was in it, and the house was on fire, and my mother was in danger from this burning house. But in the dream, I had the sense, I had this feeling I, I still have time to save her. There is still time to save her. I woke up from that dream and I felt very strongly that God was giving me a warning, a gracious warning. Stop wasting time with your mother. Tell her about me. Share the message of the gospel with her. So I began to do so again, lovingly, wisely, but with, 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 with perseverance taking initiative, trying to make the most of every opportunity. And she eventually came to know Jesus a few years ago. She became a Christian. And you know what happened over time with this disease? She came to the point where she developed dementia. And now to this day, she cannot have a conversation or she is completely pretty much cognitively gone. And if I had tried to share the gospel with her today, I don't think she would understand what I'm talking about. And I think God in his sovereignty gave me this dream to warn me to say, Ulysses, stop wasting your time. There's still time, but get on it. I want your mother to know me. I want her to experience forgiveness. I want her to know what it's like to be a daughter of God and to be able to spend eternity with me. And I said, okay, God. And she came to know the Lord. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that God gave me a swift kick in the pants to say, get on it with your mom. What kairos opportunities are in your life right now with the people around you? You have so many opportunities, and some may never come again. 
Maybe, maybe you, you, you just, you don't, you don't like family reunions. Oh, you know, because my cousin is going to be there. You know her. She's always showing off about what school she went to. That school starts with H, ends with D. You know, Haverford, that one. How so annoying. I hate these family reunions. But that might be some of your relatives' best or only chance to hear the gospel, and you're not going to see them for another two or three years. And Jesus said, the next day, tomorrow, is not even guaranteed to us. When you leave company, your company, you change your job. Some of you change your job every two years. It's like a hobby for you. Your job is to change jobs for some of you. You know the reality is? You will never see most of your coworkers in that company ever again. You won't. And you may have been the best opportunity for them to not only see how a Christian lives, a bondservant in the workplace, but to hear the beautiful news of Jesus Christ in a clear way. I've missed so many of those opportunities, but I have so many more ahead of me. And as do you, we need to pray, God, give me the courage. Open the door, and when you open it, give me the courage to walk through. Give me the courage to walk through and to declare Jesus clearly. I want to close with this. I want to invite the worship team up at this time. Paul says, when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. What does he mean, seasoned with salt? That's kind of a strange saying. What I think he means is this. He says, when you share the gospel, when you tell it to other people, does it taste good? Does it taste good? Does it make the, the soul of the other person, does it make the mouth of that person's soul water for Jesus? Is it seasoned with salt? Does it taste good? And, and if it doesn't, if our gospel declaration is bland, Maybe one thing that we need to do, we need to begin to do, is we need to do what the psalmist said. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That we need to go back and say, God, to sit at his feet and say, Lord, I want to taste the gospel once again. I want to know that the gospel is good. God, start with me. Start, start. With, with me coming into your presence and reminding me once again how good the gospel is, going back to my first love once again and experiencing that in my life. Maybe that's what some of us need to do here this morning. To pray, Lord, I want to taste and see that you are good. Let's stand and, and pray together. Brothers and sisters, 
we are still here on this earth for one reason. The gospel must go to all nations. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Not for your jobs, not for your life goals, your plans, not for those things, but we are here on mission. That's the only thing keeping Jesus from coming back. Let's pray that we would be people who seize the opportunities that are all around. And, and even if you feel like, I'm not a good speaker, I don't know how to, I'm not eloquent. Moses wasn't either. And God said to Moses, who gave, Mo, who gave man his mouth? Who gave man his mouth? God did. And he can give you, he can give us the words. But maybe what we need to do this morning is to first pray, God, I want to taste and see that you are good. Man, Lord, you know, just I'm not excited about the gospel. Church has become a routine, a legalistic routine to me. Lord, would you restore my first love? Would you restore the joy within my heart, Lord God? Would you help me to experience the taste and see that the Lord is good? Oh, God, that's what I want. That's what I want this morning, God. Can we first pray for that, brothers and sisters? I want to encourage you. Can we, can we just begin to ask God, Lord, Lord, if, if season the gospel with salt in my own heart, Lord, so that when I declare it to others, I mean it. I mean it. They can taste it. They can see that I believe it. They can see that it is something that has changed my life, that I'm so passionate about it because I, I experience my first love because I've tasted and seen how good you are. Brothers and sisters, let's just begin to pray for that first. Maybe you want to put your hand upon your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to come and to fill you and to begin to move in your heart in that way. Let's just begin to do that right now. Let's just take this moment. Take this moment say, God, I want to come back to you. I want to come back to your presence, God. Lord, let me taste and see how good you are. Let's pray together first for that right now. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Oh, God, Lord, we want to pray, God, let your spirit come. Oh, let your spirit come, God. Lord, Lord, God. Lord, Lord. God, if our hearts have grown old, Lord God, if our love has grown old, Lord God, Lord, we pray. We pray, Lord God, come, let your spirit fill us. Let your spirit fill us once again, God, with your love. Oh, God, bring us back. Oh, God, bring us back, oh, Lord God. Bring us back, Lord God. Oh, may we experience it. May we taste it, the sweetness and the goodness of God. Oh, Lord God, bring us back, God, to our first love. Bring us back to our first love, oh, Lord God. Lord, we pray, come, come, Lord God. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit, Lord God. More, more of you, God. More of you, Lord God. More of you, God. Oh, Lord, we pray, God, come. Lord, Lord God, we pray, come, Lord God. Jesus. Lord, Lord God. let's pray together brothers and sisters let's pray for God to open doors 
Let's pray for the boldness to walk through it. Let's begin to pray and lift up some of your, maybe your coworkers. Maybe there's an uncle or a cousin, somebody in your life. Maybe there's a friend at the gym. Maybe you've, you've been silent and, and you know, you've been friends for a while or you've known this person and maybe God is putting on your heart that it's time. It's time to speak the gospel. It's time to speak the gospel clearly and to ask God, Lord, give me that open door and give me the boldness and the courage to walk through it when I do. Let's pray, brothers and sisters, for that. Let's lift up somebody. Pray for one or two people in your lives right now. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we pray, God, we want to be a church, Lord God, that is sharing the gospel, Lord God. Lord, we want to be a church, God. Lord, where the light of Christ, Lord God, is being shined, Lord God. Oh, Lord, we pray, God, open our mouths, God. Lord, open our mouths, God. Open the doors and open our mouths, oh God. Open the doors and open the mou- our mouths, God, to the lives around us, God, the people, Lord God, who need to hear the gospel. Oh, Lord, we pray, God, come. Come, Lord God. Lord, Lord God, help us to stop waiting, God, and help us, Lord God, to begin to shine the light of Christ, Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray. Fill us with your spirit, God. Fill us with your spirit, Lord God. Lord, we pray, come. Lord, we pray, come, Lord God. Oh, God, we pray, Lord. God, we pray, God, help us to be people of prayer. Lord, help us to go deep in prayer, consistently praying for those in our lives, God, praying for the gospel to go forth, Lord. God, we pray, God, fill our hearts with courage and boldness to speak forth the whole gospel, the clear gospel, Lord God. Forgive us, Lord, for the the ways in which we fumbled it. Forgive us, God, for the ways in which we've let fear take over, Lord God. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our mouths. Put your words within our mouths, God. And we pray that many people would come to know you through renewal. Many people would come to know you, Lord God, and be baptized in this church, Lord. And we pray, God, come and may your name be declared and glorified in this place. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Let's continue to worship the Lord as we respond.